That's kind of conversation between the soul. That's conversation between the soul and the night. Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we wanted to wish everyone a happy holidays. Let everyone know that this is going to be our last news special. We'll still be releasing content, both bonus and regular content, but this will be our last news special till early January. And we've actually got some exciting news in the new year. Everyone stay tuned. But Derek and I just wanted to wish everyone a happy holidays because we are very excited to bring you the news. Derek is already grinning from ear to ear. I wish you all could uh, see Don't, it. don't really? speak for me. I'm not, I don't necessarily want to wish anybody a happy holidays. Sorry, uh, you, you, just, you just assumed that I did. No, it's it's fine. Yes, obviously, happy this holidays to everybody. Gen X millennial generational warfare right here. But Derek... <laughs> <laughs> why, don't, why don't we start with, um, of course, the, the big news story really of, of the autumn. And unfortunately, it looks like it'll be until the winter. And that is Gaza. Um, so we, we had a special on Gaza released on Tuesday. So if you want more details, everyone, please check that out. But uh, Derek, could you tell us a little bit about the UN resolution, the ceasefire talks and this potential Geneva conference? Uh, yeah, I mean, just to, I guess, build on what we talked about yesterday, the ceasefire resolution that's been percolating at the Security Council, which we said had been delayed. There was supposed to be a vote on Monday. It was delayed until Tuesday, then delayed again till went to Wednesday because of the U.S., essentially, because the, the supporters uh, of this resolution are trying to write it in such a way that the U.S. won't veto it. That vote has been delayed again until at least Thursday. It may be delayed Beyond that, I don't know, but clearly they have not been able to bridge the gaps. The The two big issues from what I've seen are the U.S. doesn't want anything in this resolution that smacks of a ceasefire. It's willing to have language like humanitarian pause or humanitarian suspension in fighting, but it doesn't want anything that sounds like a cessation or a ceasefire. Uh, and so that's been, I guess, difficult to, to hash out. And, uh, the second thing, supposedly, this is according to the Associated Press, the second issue has to do with the humanitarian part of the resolution, which sets up the United Nations, a, a new, it, it would stand up a new United Nations inspections capability for aid coming into Gaza. This is, uh, I gather something of a red line for the Israelis who are demanding that they be the ones who have the authority to inspect items coming in. Uh, so they don't like anything that, that might indicate that the UN is going to take that responsibility away from them. Uh, so those seem to be the two issues. Now, if you're uh, a cynic like me, then you uh, probably have already concluded that what the Biden administration is really doing here is just throwing up a bunch of roadblocks and whatever uh, sticks, sticks, and it's making the other council members jump through hoops uh, because it doesn't want to have to veto another resolution, but it's not going to allow this to actually go through, at least not in any way that, that has any specificity or wording that uh, would actually be considered binding or, or anything like that on uh, Israel. So, uh, you know, they're just kind of 
throwing a bunch of crap against the wall and saying, no, no, you have to do this now. No, no, you have to do that. And, oh, can't we delay it another day? Well, okay, let's do that. And so now, you know, they've jerked the rest of the council around for four days at least here. Um, I'm not sure they're going to get a fifth one at some point. I, I assume that uh, the UAE, which is the, uh, the, the main sponsor of the resolution, but the other countries, along with the other countries that support it, are going to say, you know, we're tired of this. Just let's just have a vote. And if you're going to veto it, veto it. Uh, that's something that the Biden administration, I think, would would rather avoid because of the geopolitical grief that it got the last time it, it vetoed a ceasefire resolution of the council. But uh, that may be uh, what winds up happening anyway. Thanks, Derek. Why don't we talk a little bit now about the um, potential Geneva conference? Yes. So there's the Geneva conference and there's also the negotiations that are happening outside the U.N. on a possible renewal of the ceasefire. Uh, for prisoners deal that was in place last month. But the, the Geneva thing is, is I can, that's that I can get through that quicker. Akbar Shahid Ahmed, who's been covering this a lot, this story a lot at, at HuffPost and who we've had on this program, uh, wrote a piece on Wednesday. Uh, apparently there is a, a push underway, uh, among a, a number of countries, NGOs, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, all the the, the human rights NGOs to organize a conference to discuss violations of the Geneva Conventions uh, by the Israeli military and its conduct of the war in Gaza. Uh, the U.S. the Biden administration is, is according to Akbar, uh, doing everything it can to, to prevent that from happening. Um, now I don't know what the the nature of this conference would be or whether there would be anything. But it's it's international law, so none of it is really real or enforceable. Nevertheless, it, it, I'm sure it would be embarrassing for the Israelis, and, and it would be embarrassing for the United States as well. Uh, so that there's there's a definitely a heated, apparently effort underway diplomatically from the the State Department to try and stop this from happening. Now, this is all taking place in the in, you know kind of in the background of talks to to revive last month's ceasefire deal between Israel and, and Hamas. Uh, as we talked about yesterday, this is motivated to some degree by uh, the terrible incident that happened on Friday when the Israeli military, uh, Israeli soldiers gunned down three hostages uh, thinking, I guess, I don't know what they were thinking really, but uh, was presumably thinking that they were, you know, a threat in some way, uh, but gunned down three of them in Shijaya, which is a neighborhood uh, outside Gaza City. Uh, that's sort of revived all the hostilities and the tensions that have been percolating in, in Israel since October 7th about the government's efforts to get the hostages out of Gaza and whether waging full-scale war is really the best way to do that. Uh, so there's been some movement toward that. I don't want to recap what we talked about yesterday, but uh, I will say I mentioned yesterday that the the leader of Hamas's political wing, Ismail Haniya, uh, was heading for Egypt, uh, supposedly to discuss uh, the terms of of a potential deal, and he did in fact make that trip. So clearly, things are still moving forward. I, I can't say how close uh, or far they are with respect to actually coming to an agreement, but. More than than anything that might happen at the UN Security Council or this Geneva thing, which uh, seems very nebulous to me, uh, if there's any hope for even a, a temporary, 
pause in the fighting. It's going to have to be through something like this. Uh, the Israelis have have reportedly uh, draw, lowered their 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 threshold for a ceasefire. They've offered uh, a weak ceasefire in return for forty, r- roughly forty hostages being freed from Gaza, and I, I assume that will also mean some Palestinian prisoners being or some Palestinian detainees being freed by the Israeli government. Um, the the what's notable about that is last month during the the week that the ceasefire was in place they got about 80 hostages released from Gaza so that's where they had been demanding about 10 at least 10 hostages released per day they're down to you know maybe 5 or 6 per day so uh, you know there has been some movement in terms of people's demands but uh, we'll have to wait and see if it if it actually comes to fruition All right, Derek, let's move a little south and talk about Yemen. And why don't we start by talking about the Red Sea Coalition? Yeah, so I think people are aware the the Houthis, Houthi rebels in northern Yemen have been, um, you know, kind of wilding out here since uh, really mid-October. They've been launching periodically missiles and drones at Israel, but more recently they've been focused on attacking commercial ships and some naval vessels. They haven't had as much success with that. Uh, in the Red Sea, and particularly in the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, which is the uh, choke point that connects the Red Sea to the uh, Arabian Sea, and, and is a major uh, shipping lane, and, and one that is you know could be very easily uh, cut off if if somebody were so inclined. Uh, so they've been you know almost on a daily basis at this point attacking with drones, with missiles, uh, connecting uh, on you know their their success ratio is not great, but uh, it's been enough to frighten shipping companies into kind of swearing off the Red Sea shipping corridor altogether. Uh, you know, I know there was somebody circulating uh, on Twitter some uh, shipping maps, and you can see the the ships like turning around, literally turning around and going heading around Africa rather than uh, enter the Red Sea, or ships in the Mediterranean turning around and going in the opposite direction uh, that were headed for the Suez Canal. So it, it's definitely having an effect. On Monday, I believe, or uh, yeah, I think it was Monday. Yes, the U.S. military unveiled, and you're gonna, you're, I know you're gonna love this name, Danny. They unveiled uh, a new Red Sea maritime operation called Operation Prosperity Guardian. So good, uh, I recommended that. I wrote it, and they have like New York <laughs> contests where they ask for the stupidest names for missions. That was the baby. So regarding prosperity, uh, I know my prosperity, I've been worried about it for a while. And so I'm, I'm very grateful uh, to the U.S. military for guarding it. This was supposed to be a big rollout. They had been kind of highlighting or, or kind of telegraphing that uh, we're going to have a big, you know, big international coalition to uh, counter these Houthi attacks. And it's going to be very robust. It wound up being uh, kind of comically disappointing, I think. It, it, it's a 10-country coalition uh, in, in addition to the US we've got Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, Netherlands, Norway, Seychelles, Spain and the UK. Uh, I assume they were expecting it to be bigger and I, I especially assume that they were expecting more Arab countries to join but uh, Bahrain was the only one and I think the absence of, of any other Arab countries uh, and in particular the absence of Saudi Arabia which of course has its own issues with the Houthis has been at war with them. Uh, you know, they're, 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 that war is suspended for the time being, but it's been at war with them since, uh, you know, 2015, 2016 20, uh, in, in Yemen. 
the the absence of the Saudis, I think, is particularly glaring uh, and shows that, you know, they, they don't want to touch this uh, with a with a 10 foot pole. Basically, they don't want to be seen kind of st- defending uh, Israel by by taking on the Houthis uh, and uh, in, in this in this context. So it's it's uh, an interesting and I think um, not great development from the Biden administration's perspective. So that's I mean, that's the big news. The Houthis have said that they are not going to stop. They're not going to they're going to continue to attack ships in the uh, in the Red Sea. They're not going to be cowed by this coalition. This is all potentially leading to U.S. uh, airstrikes on northern Yemen, uh, which I think there have already been a couple just kind of random ones. But I mean, you know, an extended campaign, U.S. campaign against the Houthis, uh, which could cause all sorts of regional problems. Uh, and, you know, I don't know that we're going to get there, but if we do, I think it'll be, uh, great that we're, we're kind of getting back into, uh, the game in the Middle East in order to make sure that everybody's like Christmas schlock gets there on time, uh, because they don't have to go or divert shipping around all the drop shipping companies. We're going to be going to war with all these, the drop shipping back, companies. Baby. I don't uh, think you're still so, but thank God. Yeah. So yeah, that's where things stand. Uh, this very... I think disappointingly tiny coalition uh, and uh, tensions are high and we'll see how that uh, plays out. Uh, So big surprise. Let's move on over to Egypt. But (laughs) there was a big surprise in the presidential election. Yeah, it was it was a tight one. But uh, to to a lot of people's shock, I think uh, President Abdel Fattah Sisi has pulled it out. He has won re-election. He did it, baby. Uh, He he uh, he won a real nail biter. He only gave himself 89.6% of the vote, which is uh, in contrast. <laughs> Those are Reagan 84 numbers. <laughs> in contrast to uh, 2014 and 2018, when he gave himself 96 and 97, and then I think 96% of the vote. Uh, turnout was a very robust 67%. There's absolutely no evidence to suggest that it was anywhere near that. Uh, and in fact, in those past two elections, they pretended the turnout was only in the 40s. So they've clearly upped their their uh, kind of fictionalization uh, of the, the election here uh, to a very robust 67% turnout. So good for them. Uh, the the imaginary Egyptians who, who voted in those numbers should be very proud of themselves. Thank you, Derek. Um, let's continue on to Myanmar and let's talk about the ongoing fighting there. Yes, uh, I think last week we talked about the Chinese government having claimed that they had mediated a ceasefire between the Rebel Brotherhood Alliance and the the Myanmar junta in Shan State, where there's been a rebellion and an offensive, major rebel offensive underway since late October. Uh, clearly, uh, their definition of ceasefire is not the one that is commonly used because the rebels have continued uh, through the weekend and into the first part of this week. Uh, just seizing territory in Shan State. They, they've taken a couple of uh, towns. They've taken a, a, a trade, a trading conduit, uh, or a trading zone that, that I guess does a lot of com- uh, where a lot of commercial business is done along the Myanmar Chinese border. There is uh, there was just a report I think on kind of late Tuesday night that they had taken another crossing check border checkpoint. Uh, so that that is still going on, and I don't. There's not a lot more to say about it, except that uh, you know, if you if you bought into this idea that there was a ceasefire, it uh, it is clearly not the case. 
All right, let's move on to North Korea, where uh, and and the the long series of North Korean missiles tests continues. Yeah, this one was kind of a big one. Uh, the North Koreans fired off uh, first on Sunday evening. They fired off what was probably a short range ballistic missile, but then they followed that up early Monday morning with uh, an intercontinental ballistic missile test uh, fired, you know, as usual off the east coast of the country, splashed down in the ocean. Uh, it, it appears, this appears to have been a test of their Hwasong-18 uh, missile, which has a range of about 15,000 kilometers. At least that was what was indicated by the test, at least in the data that, you know, South Korea and Japan and the U.S. have been able to gather, uh, which puts the entire United States in, in range of this missile. The Hwasong-18 is interesting because it's solid fuel rather than liquid fuel, so it can be stored uh, ready to fire, essentially, and it, you know, brought out. Uh, in, in very short order if the North Koreans were to uh, decide to go the route of uh, nuclear annihilation that uh, they could do that pretty quickly. Um, the, the, it's, I, I'm not entirely clear. I'm never really, I'm never entirely clear why they picked these particular times uh, to conduct their tests. But I will say that the U.S. Uh, sent another, deployed another of its uh, attack submarines, nuclear-powered attack submarines, to South Korea on Sunday, the USS Missouri. Uh, additionally, the U.S. and South Korea had a meeting of their nuclear consultative group, which, you know, as you might expect, is all about North Korea. Uh, on Friday, uh, none of these things were apparently well-received by the North Korean government. Uh, so that's probably, that probably explains uh, the timing. Uh, and certainly in, in the terms of the ICBM. This is still a technology, and particularly the solid, the solid fuel. These are still technologies that the North Koreans are trying to perfect. So, uh, you know, they are doing legitimate testing. They're not just demonstrating uh, their capabilities. These are actually meant to to get uh, data and and you know, uh, bolster or or enhance those programs. We should. Uh do our live performance in North Korea, I think. That's um, not a bad idea. Oh, oh, I know. Hello, Prestige Heads. Danny here. And I wanted to tell you about this great product that I've actually been using for the past several months, and that's Aura Digital Frames. Now, you may have heard on the podcast recently a baby in the background, and it is indeed true that I've recently had a kid. But my parents, unfortunately, and like many of us, live pretty far away. But one way I've been able to update them on my baby's life is with Aura Digital Frames. I've been constantly sending them photos of him in all states, crying, laughing, what have you. And I can tell they really love it because they constantly ask for more photos. It's really been an amazing way for us to stay in touch and for them to feel like they're able to watch my baby grow up in a real way. It's an awesome way to stay in contact with people you love who might not live soon super close. And other people agree, Aura Frames was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter, and Fast Company said the simple, stylish digital picture frame can replace social media in your life, which is good for all of you, I know. So with Aura, give the perfect gift this holiday. Visit AuraFrames.com today and get $30 off their best-selling frames with the code PRESTIGE. These frames sell out quickly, though, so get yours before they're gone. That's A-U- raframes.com with the promo code prestige and as always terms and conditions apply let's talk about sudan where the rsf has captured another city 
Yeah, this is uh, one of the grimmer stories uh, that we're going to cover this week. The Rapid Support Forces group has taken, they've seized control of the city of Wad Madani, which is located in Jazeera State in kind of central Sudan. The reason that this is is particularly grim is because Wad Madani had been relatively untouched by the war between the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese military uh, to such an extent that people, uh, Sudanese people who had been displaced, particularly from Khartoum, because this isn't that far south of Khartoum, uh, people who had been displaced from that area had made their way to Wad Madani where uh, aid groups had been able to set up because, again, it was uh, kind of out of the way of the fighting. And so this had become an aid hub uh, for displaced people, and it's now not that anymore. I think around 300,000 people uh, had to flee, many of them probably already displaced from other parts of Sudan. Uh, this is according to the UN. Uh, the aid groups obviously are, are not going to be able to operate uh, in, in this place anymore. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a huge humanitarian crisis. Uh, and uh, in terms of the conflict, it, it's another step forward for the RSF, which has been, which has had most of the momentum to the extent that anybody does have momentum in this conflict for some time now. It, of course, controls much of the Darfur region, if not all of it at this point. It controls some other parts of uh, Sudan. But Wad Madani is centrally located. Uh, it gives the, the RSF a, a beachhead to sort of move against military positions further to the east. So from, from that perspective, it, uh, it's a pretty significant strategic gain for them. But I think the bigger issue is that it's just a, uh, another humanitarian crisis and a conflict that's had uh, obviously quite a few of those. Manifold, to say the least. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Somalia. And there's been a resurgence or at least a possible resurgence of um, piracy. Let's yeah, go. we may be I may be too early to say this, but but there have been a couple of instances now in the last few weeks of piracy off the Somali coast that have been subsumed into this uh, story about the, the Houthis attacking shipping in the Red Sea, but I think probably deserves it probably deserves its own separate uh, discussion because it it seems to be happening. Uh, it seems to be they seem to be Somali pirates. They don't seem to be necessarily connected to the Houthis in any way. Uh, there was an incident late last month uh, that in in which a ship reported a hijacking attempt and and a U.S. naval vessel responded and was able to run the hijackers off. But on uh, Sunday, or no, Friday, rather, it was confirmed over the weekend, but on Friday, uh, there was a Maltese-flagged uh, cargo ship that, again, reported a hijacking. The Span- a Spanish naval vessel responded this time. They weren't able to run the hijackers off, but they have confirmed that, that the hijacking took place. Uh, and this may be the first successful instance of uh, Somali piracy, of Somali hijacking, since 2017 or 2018 it's been a while uh of course people you know uh, war on terror heads will remember that uh in the early 2000s and and into the early 2010s really somali piracy was a huge issue uh it was the the, the waters off the somali coast were considered some of the uh, the most dangerous in the world uh that that really tapered off uh, as the somali government kind of got its act together a little bit i wouldn't say it has to a great extent but uh, and as the uh, there was an, a more coordinated international response uh, that the piracy tapered off. And so, as I say, it's been 
a few years since a successful hijacking like this, but uh, uh, it may be coming back. And I, I, I don't know that it's necessarily connected to what's happening in Gaza or to the, the Houthi conflict. They may be, there may be some opportunism here while these uh, these Houthi attacks are going on. There's, you know, the former pirates are seeing an opportunity to get back out there and, and get back to it. Uh, but I, I do think it's it's probably uh, a separate thing that'll have to be dealt with separately. All right, Derek, let's move over for a moment to the Western Hemisphere. And let's talk about Chile, where there has been a constitutional referendum. Yes, uh, if people have been if people have been following this process, of course, Chile has been trying to rewrite its Augusto Pinochet era constitution for quite some time now. There was an attempt last year that involved uh, or that that resulted in, uh, I think, a fairly robustly leftist draft constitution that was defeated uh, in a plebiscite uh, toward the end of that year. The process then got underway again this year. Uh, voters elected a, a, a committee, a convention to write a, a new constitution that was much more conservative. The document that they wound up drafting was widely considered to be even more right wing than the one that Pinochet uh, wrote, which seems amazing. But uh, there you have it. Uh, that draft went up for a, a referendum on Sunday and was also resoundingly rejected. Uh, I think no took about 56% of the vote. So, uh, you know, not much, uh, not much drama there. So uh, I guess Chile is going to be stuck with the Pinochet constitution now uh, indefinitely. Uh, the president of Chile, Gabriel Boric, who uh, really had his presidency derailed when the, the, the leftist draft wasn't adopted last year, uh, he has said, you know, he, he said we could try this one more time, but that's it. I don't, I have no interest in, uh, you know, trying to, to bash my head against this proverbial wall. So, uh, I don't see him going back to the, the well again. Uh, and so it's, it, it may be a while before anybody revisits this. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about the Venezuela U.S. prisoner swap. Yeah, I don't have a ton of detail on this because it, uh, it just was reported. Uh, a little while before we uh, recorded, but the U.S. and Venezuelan governments have apparently uh, agreed to a prisoner swap. The U.S. is releasing uh, a man named Alex Saab, who is a Colombian businessman with ties to uh, Nicolas Maduro and his government. He's served as sort of a, uh, a diplomat of sorts. Uh, you know, there's some question as to uh, whether he ever had official diplomatic status on the Venezuelan government's behalf, but uh, he was arrested and uh, extradited to the U.S. Uh, some time back uh, on kind of corruption uh, embezzlement charges, uh, but mostly because he was tight with Maduro, I think, and the U.S. wanted to uh, to interrogate him, basically. Uh, Maduro's been, been trying to get him released. This has been a priority for his government. And so the deal from what I've seen is uh, the Venezuelan government is releasing 10 uh, U.S. nationals it had been holding in custody. I don't know the identities uh, of them. Uh, and along with 20 uh, prisoners, political prisoners, essentially linked to the, the country's uh, opposition or people who could be considered, I guess, political prisoners, uh, in return for the release of Saab and his uh, his return to Venezuela. Uh, this is this is an indication, I think, that that uh, the U.S. and Venezuela are still 
trying to work things out to some degree. You may recall a few weeks back, the U.S., or it's been more than a few weeks, I guess, at this point, but the, the Biden administration uh, cut a deal with Maduro's government to uh, reduce sanctions, to lighten the sanctions burden on Venezuela in return for uh, an agreement to hold a what I guess you know the U.S. government would consider legitimate election, free and fair, whatever you want to call it, uh, in next year when when uh, they're scheduled to have a, a presidential election. Uh, there's there's been a lot of there's been some tension a, a around that in in recent weeks because uh, the Biden administration seems to feel that Maduro is not moving fast enough to make good on his promises or the promises that they think he made uh, under that deal to to you know allow prominent opposition figures to get their names on the ballot to, you know, people who've been proscribed by election authorities to get uh, removed from, uh, from the ban list or to get their bans lifted. Um, and to, to ensure a, you know, again, quote unquote, free and fair election. So there's been some thinking that maybe the Biden administration would uh, reimpose sanctions. That's the, the, the threat that's sort of looming over this, but the prisoner swap comes at a, a an interesting time and maybe indicates that that relationship is not as uh, as poor or as uh, as shaky as uh, may have been believed. Let's end on Ukraine, and and maybe you could give listeners a sense of where this war stands at the end of twenty twenty three, where the U.S. stands on it. What do we know about the future in five years? Is this still going to be going on? The whole shebang. Yeah, so um, it's good timing because there was a. The UK Defense Ministry, which has been doing a lot of like uh, armchair analysis of the war for anybody who cares to listen uh, and has been, you know, predicting Ukrainian imminent Ukrainian victory for a you know, year and a half now. Um, but I mean, I, I'm exaggerating, but they're obviously, you know, have been uh, their analysis is slanted toward cheerleading for uh, Ukraine. They issued uh, a new assessment of where the uh, war stands on Wednesday uh, that indicates that with their counteroffensive having now completely petered out, the Ukrainian military is moving back to a defensive position uh, along the front line. I I think I can... Uh, The quote here is uh, that the Ukrainians have mobilized a concerted effort to improve field fortifications as their forces pivot to a more defensive posture along much of the front line, which tells you uh, the thing that that uh, among other people, the commander of the Ukrainian military, Valery Zeluzhny, said weeks ago, this is a stalemate. Uh, It might not stay that way. The Russian military has a much greater capacity to uh, withstand losses to produce weapons. Uh, so, you know, if it stays this way, eventually you can imagine a point where the Russians have, uh, a, an advantage and can go back on the offensive. But for right now, uh, this is a basically static front line. Uh, it is, uh, as I say, a stalemate. Uh, and that comes at a time when, all almost all of the Western funding that Ukraine has been relying on is in question now. The European Union, uh, I think we talked last week that uh, Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, had uh, been cajoled or bribed or whatever into dropping his objection to opening accession talks 
with Ukraine and sort of excused himself from the room and abstained when it came time to vote on it. Uh, he later, at the same summit last week, uh, blocked consideration of a 50 billion euro financial aid package that was supposed to come from uh, the EU to Ukraine. Uh, EU officials are going to pick that up again uh, in the new year and seem to think that they can uh, figure out a way to get Orban to drop his objection or to get around it somehow. Um, but who knows? Uh, and at the same time, of course, we've been talking about uh, the effort by the Biden administration to uh, secure this supplemental war funding bill that he's uh, has had submitted to that Joe Biden had submitted to Congress weeks ago uh, that includes about sixty billion dollars for Ukraine. Uh, it includes uh, money for Israel, for Taiwan, for the border. Uh, it's been tied up in in Congress because of disagreements over the border piece uh, between Democrats and Republicans. This the last ditch kind of panicked effort to get this thing passed and to come to some accord on the border issue by the end of the year, which included, I should say, some really draconian measures that the Biden administration had finally just kind of given in and said, okay, we can, uh, you know, do whatever you want at the border and make it as, as draconian as possible uh, on asylum seekers and just some, some really uh, awful sounding stuff. Uh, even that was apparently not enough to get a, a deal done. And the house has already gone on, recess. I think the Senate now has also gone into recess. So that's done uh, for 2023. And they'll have to come back and, you know, when the uh, the winter recess is over and see if they can put something together. But in the meantime, uh, the U.S. is presumably out of money to keep to send uh, additional military aid packages to Ukraine or nearly out of money. Uh, and that's where things stand. So 2024 is uh, looking to be an interesting year in the history of U.S. foreign relations. Um, before we go, uh, Derek and I just want to thank all of our listeners for taking the time to engage with the United States and the world with us. It, it can be, you know, a, a lot, but we really find the show rewarding and we really enjoy interacting with everyone and, you know, having this platform. So Derek and I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you all for listening. Um, have a happy holiday season, uh, whether you're with friends or family or just hanging out alone. We hope you enjoy the next few weeks as we enter into the presidential year of 2024 where things don't please don't are, don't end on a downer that's just gonna down it's just gonna bring everybody down. to get wacky um so again thanks all for listening uh and enjoy our new cold war song as we welcome you to the new year bye-bye thanks everybody bye tower this is call sign prestige permission to open up on this balloon bogey roger that take him out Before I came to office, the story was about how the People's Republic of China was increasing its power and America was failing in the world. Not anymore. Almost your ass and we'll give you cash, it'll be a